Hello, my name is Eva, and today is part two of the podcast series The Last Days of Elizabeth I of England, 1603. Before we start, two apologies. Last time I called Elizabeth's advisor, William Cecil, which is untrue as he had died in 1598. I meant instead his son, Robert Cecil, who was Elizabeth's advisor from 1600 onwards. Also, I mentioned Elizabeth's favourite and called him Robert Dudley. Well, he had died in 1588, and I was actually talking about another favourite, Robert Devereux. It was he who was executed in 1601. So many Roberts, but I apologise for the errors. Anyway, last time we left off in March 1603 as a seriously ill Elizabeth, feeling every one of her 69 years had taken to her bed. Though all around her were aware that the Queen was nearing the end, Elizabeth still refused to name her successor to the Crown of England. As I mentioned last time, Elizabeth's most obvious successor was King James VI of Scotland, son of Elizabeth's executed cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. Just like Elizabeth, James traced his royal English claim back to the first Tudor king, Henry VII. However, Henry VII had won his crown in 1485 at the conclusion of the Wars of the Roses when Richard III was defeated and killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Henry VII's claim to the crown hailed from his mother, Margaret Beaufort, whose ancestors had been the illegitimate and later legitimised offspring of John of Gaunt, Edward III's fourth son. So Henry VII's claim was, at best, very far off. Unsurprisingly, the Tudors, from Henry VII's all the way down to his granddaughter Elizabeth, had gone to great lengths to establish, enhance and embellish their own royal lineage, tracing their family not only back to the Welsh Tudor nobles from whom they got their name but stressing their somewhat tenuous ancestry to Edward III, the warrior king of the 14th century. Now this was a warranted exercise, for already in 1600, Thomas Wilson, a historian of the time, identified 12 claimants to the throne, including the reluctant claimant, Arbella Stuart, kin to James VI and a great-great-granddaughter herself of King Henry VII of England. More worryingly, though, Thomas Wilson also pointed at the claimant Philip III of Spain, son of Philip II, the widower of Mary I of England, Elizabeth's sister and predecessor on the throne. While Philip III was the offspring of Philip II's later marriage, Following Mary's death, Philip II had in fact been recognised as co-monarch of England during Mary's reign, and he and his children could have theoretically made a claim to the crown of England, and certainly they did so verbally. Had the Spanish not been embroiled in wars with the Low Countries, 
modern-day Netherlands and Belgium, and had they had the resources available to them to fight for England and won, England might have been submerged into a greater continental empire with a Catholic overhead. While we today may see more clearly all the ifs and perhaps and whatnots which would have had to play out for this scenario ever to take place, for the people living in 1603, only 15 years after the Spanish Armada had attempted to invade England, this scenario did not seem as far-fetched to them as it might do to us. And Queen Elizabeth's reluctance to secure the succession may, for some people at the time, have seemed as if she were leaving the door open to civil or foreign conflict. And if there was one thing Elizabeth's advisor, Robert Cecil, was going to prevent, it was conflict. As he rose in prominence during the late 1590s, he made it his premier concern to secure a smooth transition on the occasion of the Queen's passing, which in 1598 everyone was aware would be in the not-so-distant future. And so Robert Cecil set to planning. Firstly, he discreetly and then ever more visibly arrested those who might prove troublesome, be they Catholic dissidents, friends of the executed Robert Devereux, or others of the usual suspects. He also gathered around him a handful of trusted men who were splendid riders, calm in the face of danger, and more crucially, excellent keepers of secrets. Then he looked to Scotland. Apropos secrets, it was a wildly known secret that James VI had since 1586 received an annual subsidy from Elizabeth. This was not entirely the act of a wealthier cousin once removed. It was a means by which Elizabeth could control James's policies by deferring or withholding said subsidy. That worked in her favour, but the very symbolism of it, that most certainly worked in James's favour, marking him as important and cementing their family ties. It was through these channels of financial and familial agreements that Robert Cecil decided on cementing James VI of Scotland's path to the English throne. James, on his part, was initially wary of Cecil, whom he found capable enough. But Cecil was unpopular at court and unpopular with the people, and James himself would much have preferred to negotiate with Robert Devereux, the Queen's and the people's favourite. But following Devereux's execution in 1601, it was and had to be Robert Cecil who received James's ambassadors to England, and it was Robert Cecil who instigated the secret correspondence between his small group of confidants and James in Scotland. And this was all well underway by May 1601, when James's ambassadors returned to Scotland to inform their king that a man of formidable power such as Robert Cecil who was at the heart of England's royal court, was their king's ally. Letters were sent back and forth, 
and added to the diplomatic bag and addressed to various obscure noblemen. Henry Wotton, one of the few diplomats who aided in getting the letters back and forth, later recounted that Elizabeth once noticed mail from Scotland in the diplomatic bag. She demanded to have the letter handed to her, and Robert Cecil, who was at hand, according to Watton, made as if to give it to her, but then hesitated, claiming that the letter was filthy and smelled bad. In other words, might be carrying the foul smells of disease, and he promised her that she would have it once it had been cleaned. She never saw it, and Cecil must have relied on her forgetting all about it. To this day, it is debated as to whether Elizabeth was aware of the secret negotiations. Her contemporary historians were divided on this question, while modern historians generally lean towards the theory that she was at least tacitly aware, but chose to stand above it and was primarily focused on it being kept a secret for all the reasons I described in the last episode. The correspondence dealt with how James would be received as heir to the throne of England, who would proclaim it, and the correct course of action immediately after Elizabeth's passing. It was all laid out, and as I said the last time, James was impatient to be King of England. And while Robert Cecil was keen enough to see James on the throne, Robert was all for laying out just one more plan and then one more plan again, which meant that he had an interest in Elizabeth staying alive for as long as she could. This, and his general affection for her, was why he had summoned Charles Howard to Richmond Palace in the March of 1603, when Elizabeth refused to budge from the cushions on the floor on which she had collapsed and Howard had managed what Cecil could not, to persuade the Queen to take to her bed and stay there. And now, in late March of 1603, Robert Cecil stood quietly by Elizabeth's bedside, knowing it to be her deathbed. As Archbishop Whitgift prayed for her immortal soul, Robert Cecil must have wondered and worried if he had done enough. By now, the Queen's sickness was well known across London and had even reached the ears of foreign sovereigns abroad who all watched for the first signs of unrest. Nothing had happened yet, but all seemed suspended in tension. On Wednesday the 23rd of March, Elizabeth lost the power of speech and the Privy Council was hastily assembled to once again pose the question of succession. When James VI's name was mentioned, Elizabeth motioned her scent with her hand, pointing at a crown. At least, that is the story that the council, with Cecil at its fore, later put out in the world. It was certainly the best of stories for Cecil, as it aligned with his secret plans that not even half the council were privy to. And the fact that the narrative pointed at Elizabeth herself naming her heir, would go a very long way in calming worried minds in the time to come. Next time, the 24th of March, 
the end of Gloriana and a midnight ride to Scotland, much to the fury of Robert Cecil. I hope you liked this episode, and if you do, please leave a like wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps the algorithm for this podcast. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.